I've been asked in this series, A Life Worth Giving, to bring for you what I have been seeing this last year with Samaritan's Purse, 130 countries, 60,000 uh, field staff around the world, believing that when a human tragedy takes place, the first hand to reach out ought to come from Jesus Christ through his people. And so we're in amazing places. The first team on the ground to open offices and actually follow their supplies into Myanmar. Franklin Graham was in western China at the very moment of that earthquake, and our teams were given full access, which is unprecedented in China, uh, to do relief work alongside of those teams. As you watched in China, in that Chengdu area, many of the schools that collapsed are in the area where the families only have one child. Truly a tragedy, and to be able to come without any barriers and be able to say to the people of China, God loves you. And so I have seen things, my children, for those of you that remember, still serve in Africa, two of them. Matthew, my youngest, was just married to a little girl he met that has served with us in Darfur. And uh, that's the high in life to stand here and, and marry them. Uh, they're heading back into Africa on September 1st. My daughter is, is home on break and will be heading back into Africa with her husband. And then my son is youth pastor. I talked to him uh, this past week. He had 837 middle schoolers in his department at church last weekend. You have to be called to that age group. <laughs> but let me talk to you for just a second. As we shift gears, I'm going to bring a, a talk to you this morning entitled uh, Making the Most of Your Life. It's out of a new book I've written that I have over here for you. Uh, if you're interested with some information on Samaritan's Purse. But we are here planted in San Francisco. And there often happens in our lives a collision of sorts. Sometimes in our minds, sometimes it reaches the centermost parts of our souls. But my experience in life is, is that there comes times, precious, uh, just precious strategic moments, that we feel something. It's almost as if God reaches into our, our chest cavity and presses on our hearts. And I find that in America, one of our greatest sins is that we have measured ourselves because of those feelings and defined ourselves as good people because of them. We care. But I'm not sure we care enough to be responsible for what we've seen, what has come through the windows of our eyes into our hearts and souls, to do anything about it because we are so overwhelmed by the magnitude of what we see. Just what we see between Market and 8th in the San Francisco Center. And how my life or the little bit that I have can make a difference. Because we are often, uh, we find ourselves living lives of fear. I like what my friend John Maxwell says. He says, you know, we over-exaggerate yesterday, especially us guys. We were better athletes than we really were. <laughs> Legends, in fact. And as we get older, they just get bigger and bigger. We, uh, we way overestimate tomorrow. We'll always make a difference tomorrow. Something will happen tomorrow better, bigger, more significant. But if we have really failed to miss the priority, we underestimate today. Today really does matter. And so my hope is not for what you're going to do on Monday and Tuesday, but what you'll do this afternoon. Because we tend to do what we put into practice immediately. We make critical decisions. I like what one great leader says, make the big decisions early in your life and then manage them for the rest of your life. Make the most of your life. One of the initiatives of Samaritan's Purse is Operation Christmas Child, 1993. 
we uh, had an idea that came out of Great Britain to go to the developing world. And, and what I mean by the developing world is where children never receive a gift in their entire life. Most of them face starvation on a daily basis. Parents don't get up thinking about whether their cars are going to run. They think about how to feed their families through that evening so that they might live. 1993, the, the initiative was presented to put together a shoot box, ask families in the U.S., put some gifts in there for children at different ages. We'd put a message of salvation inside that box and a letter from that family and a picture and try to connect with the children of the world as Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven. 27,000 boxes in 1993 last year, right at 8 million boxes were distributed to a world today that has 2.5 billion children under the age of 15. Mr. Graham, Billy Graham, has said his entire 60 years of ministry, when people say, how can you explain the, the throngs, the, the multitudes of people that have come to Christ around the world through your preaching? And he will, without a moment's thought, look at them and say, it has been because of prayer. I've heard Franklin say so many, many times, the key to Operation Christmas Child success and getting the message of Jesus Christ to these children, hope that God loves them, is prayer. We have five processing centers across the United States. The closest to you is Orange County. This past year, one of our workers saw an eight-year-old little girl. And as the boxes were being gone through to see if there was anything that shouldn't be inside of them, and the final step to go in the cardboard box into the sea containers that go around the world, they saw this little girl at the end, and she was taking the lid off the boxes and putting her face inside and praying inside of each one. Sometimes the press that comes on our heart may, may be in things that you think are not so significant. You're not on the platform speaking this morning, or you weren't one of the worship team, and you think, what can I do that really matters, and does it really matter? And yet, I believe Mr. Graham is right in what that little girl did. You'll see at the end of this message changed the outcome of someone's life forever. At other times, we're called to be radical witnesses. In the face of often difficult circumstances, I love Sunday mornings wherever I'm at in the world because, as in San Francisco, I don't know about you, but I just love Sunday morning here. The city seems to stop and be quiet and calm, much not like it was last night. It was several months ago, Saturday night, that I was speaking, and I was able to come back into Charlotte to the airport to drive to our international headquarters, which is two hours north of Charlotte, Boone, North Carolina, up in the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, it was a calm Sunday morning, very early, about 6.30 a.m., and I came out of the airport and pulled up to the light. And as I was pulling up to the light to make a left to go to 85 and head up the mountains, a car came next to me, and as the light was changing, I turned, and, and you know, in San Francisco, you have to, on Friday nights, pay attention. But on Sunday mornings, you can almost look next to you and almost see the face of someone that's driving along the way. I turned and I saw this 1980s-something, either Buick or Oldsmobile, big box car. And it was coming along, and I could see the gentleman's face almost kind of in an acknowledgment. And, and I said, oh, he's going to run the light. And as the light was changing, it turned red, and he went through the intersection. I was slowing down. It was calm. And in a flash, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this tractor trailer. And from the airport, it's on a hill, and he was timing that light, it looked like, and he was coming full speed. And almost like the twilight zone, it was surreal. 
I saw this tractor trailer like in a Hollywood movie go up and over top of this car. And it was the heinous sounds of metal being ripped. The top came off the car. Uh, wheels and parts of that car were, were being drugged by this tractor trailer. It was locked up and sliding sideways like in a Mel Gibson movie or something. It's going along, you know, and I'm sitting there and my body is just becoming numb at what I'm seeing. It, it can't be real. And yet the smells and the sights and everything coming inside of me, there was, there's no way to emotionally describe uh, what, I, what I felt and saw. And I was by myself. No one else around. And when everything came to a calm and all the metal stopped spinning, I got out of my car and I ran up and the things that I saw you ought not to have to see. The things that I've seen in the last year around the world, some of it you just ought not have to see. The man was bleeding horribly from his head. Most of the top of his head was gone. I ran back to my car with my suitcase and just grabbed something. It happened to be one of my, my good white shirts. I ran up and I just stuck it on his head. I think more not to have to look at what I was seeing than knowing what to do. Ribs were out of his chest and, and his arm was compound fractured. The, he was trying to breathe and uh, I did not know what to do. And uh, he kept between breaths of bleeding out of his mouth saying, please would someone call my mama? People were coming up by this time, and they'd come running up, and they'd just stop the shock of it. And I'm standing there with this rag on his head, and I can see the truck driver come up, a little thin African-American gentleman, and you could see his body was in shock. And I knew this man was just moments away from death, and I thought to myself, September 21st, 1974, God put his finger in the center of my heart. I was a bashful kid very uh, introverted and my roommate in college was killed in an accident and I was trying to bring resolution to how I would spend the rest of my life and and so I surrendered totally my life into the hands of God and he gave me these gifts to communicate and as I prepared and over these last 32 years of speaking I can see this in a few moments when I get done I'll go over here and I'll have my books in this table and, and I, I'm, I don't do that well uh, I want to go upstairs and find a room to the side and, and just kind of close the door because I'm so bashful. But I always could see myself after some time of doing this. I could do this. There's some distance between you and I. But every once in a while, you're called to, in a radical way, to put a shirt on the top of somebody's head, and they're about to step into the presence of God. Now, if you believe that, if you really believe that people die and are separated from God forever without Jesus Christ, and it's your, somebody's hand's got to go on that guy's head. And people standing around, it's, it's kind of, now what are you going to do? My son Matthew that serves in Sudan, about six months into his commitment, he serves these, we have them sign these MOUs, Memorandums of Understanding, they're six months or a year after six months. I called, I said, Matthew, I said, are you coming home, son? He said to me, Dad, he said, do you think one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account for what I've seen and what I did about that or what I did not do about that? You know, I hate it when my kids ask me the hard questions. 
I said, Matt, I, I do believe that you will, and I will. He said, then, Dad, just please, anytime I call from now on, don't ask me to come home till I finish what God has asked me to do. My hand's on top of this guy's head with his rag, and he's crying for somebody to call his mama. This grown man. And once again, God poked my heart, and it was so uncomfortable. And I leaned in, and I could hear a lady say, I told him I'm going to pray for you. And this lady, I heard her say in the background, bless you. And I w reached down, and it was a horrid thing to see. And I whispered in his ear, God, would you give this man strength? And then I whispered in his ear, I don't know if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, but if you don't right now, invite him into your heart. And I could hear him mutter words of a prayer. And finally, an officer got there and pulled me away and tried to take hold of the situation. And the next day, I called the hospital, and he had died. We are planted here in San Francisco. And we've got to ask ourselves the question whether in small ways or very radical ways, not what we did yesterday when we failed our opportunities, because we come in on a morning like this, and if we're not careful, we don't do anything today or tomorrow because of our failures of the past. And I want to say to you that yesterday ended last night at midnight. Our failures are behind us. And failures don't define us, they're events. And the Apostle Paul tells us, forgetting the things that are behind, let's press toward the mark, not tomorrow, today. Let's press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Because in some small way, or perhaps in some radical way, you're going to be given the opportunity to respond by faith and obedience to whatever the opportunity is to show that God still loves people. If you have your Bible this morning or your handout, I want you to look at two passages of Scripture. Luke chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 16. Luke chapter 10, Matthew uh, chapter 16. Collisions of our soul. After what I've seen, one day will God ask me when I stand before him what I did. I like what Franklin Graham says about Samaritan's Purse. He says, we'll get as dirty as we have to get to earn the right to share the gospel just one time. Sometimes it can be very dirty business getting involved in someone's life. It can be bloody and messy, not in a physical way, but in an emotional way to get inside of someone's boundaries. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. If you have a pen, you ought to date it. I think today is the, what, the 17th? You ought to date it because you'll come back to a decision. I'm asking you a question today. And so if you have a pen, it might be good to mark it down. 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Sounds like San Francisco, doesn't it? Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, underline this phrase, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? 
in San Francisco, you don't have to go far to see the, the young lady as I saw her last night piling up with old blankets and sleeping bags that I walked past. See, yesterday afternoon when I got here, I went for a walk down to the San Francisco Center just to get my mind back on San Francisco. And it's very different in the day than it is in the night. And then I came and I brought this message. And last night when I finished, I got back to my room and got undressed. And I was a, a little bit hungry and unsettled in my spirit. And so I got my stuff back on and I went out. And at night, it's a very different place. And after bringing this talk about who is my neighbor, I walked past this lady that was reaching out with her cup, and you're familiar with it. But my eye caught her arms and all the track marks and the sores that were on her arms. And I thought, how do I teach without having done something? So I went down to one Walgreens. It was closed. And I asked someone, is there another pharmacy? They sent me the other way. And I went to Walgreens, bought these ointments. Because it's easy enough for me, because I have good uh, income, to throw some change in the cup, and that's what she requested, but to kneel down and to look deeply into someone's eyes and to have some ointment and say, uh, can I mend your wounds? And to say those words, God loves you. We don't know when it is the time that changes someone's life forever. Who is our neighbor? My hope is, is that on the front line in San Francisco, the stories that I will tell you in the furthest, most remote places in the world will come back and solicit in you some kind of reaction, not just for the woman who lays in the blankets and has the sores, but often for someone who is just as damaged on the inside and drives a BMW and lives at a nice address and has a great income that lives next door to you. Their wounds are just hidden to your eyes, but none, not the least bit less. And what will we do with today and tomorrow in our responsibility to the kingdom? There are three thoughts I want you to turn to Matthew 16 and show you in verse 24. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, there in your handout it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus said, If you, wanna, if you want to be one of my disciples, here's three thoughts that I want you to think through as you begin your Monday. Number one, it's going to cost you something to follow me. Take up the cross, he says. I think often we get discouraged in San Francisco where strength passes from us because as a Christ follower you can be totally overwhelmed by the environment that you live in and you can lose courage, lose heart and your witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in so many ways. We're not talking about 100 years ago or 1980, but just 100 days ago in the 21st century, in this year. In the middle part of Sudan, in a place called the Nuba Mountains, one of our team went into a small village. Sudan has seen the greatest genocide of our lifetime. Two million Christians have been slaughtered by the government of the north. Al-Bashir the president of Sudan has just been brought up on war crimes by the world court for this genocide. One of our teams sent an email to my son, Matt, and said, Matt, I just don't have the strength to see another site like this. He went in. They put the people in the church and burn it to the ground. There were some scattered people left, and they came out and told the story of a pastor just a hundred days ago that the troops came in and 
tied ropes around his ankles and pulled him up in a mango tree, took long bamboo-hardened rods and beat him and said, If you'll cry out to Allah before your church, we'll spare your life. He would not, and finally one of the blows took his life. The commander of the, of the troops forbid the people of the village and the church from burying him, so they cut him into pieces as a warning to the village. Then they put as many Christians inside the church as they could, and they burned it to the ground. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you something. Take up my cross and follow me. So about the time we lose courage in San Francisco and we lose strength, I think we ought to be reminded that there was a man between now and the past Christmas that on a Sunday morning, just like today, hung upside down in a tree and would not cry out and deny Christ. There is a cost. Second, there are no excuses. The scripture says you've got to deny yourself. We're not good as Americans at that. Giving up something we love for something we love more, that's sacrifice. We're happy to do something in the world, but not unless we are first, our needs are met. Boy, I'll tell you, 32 years ago when I held my wife's hands and I committed my life to her, it was time on that day to grow up. Because my role in love was no longer to be served, but to serve and love my wife even as Christ loved the church. Responsibility marks the heart of a man. Sacrifice is when he gives up something he or she loves for something they love more. Deny yourself, the scripture says. My son Matt, when he first got to Sudan, said that when he'd boil his rice outside of his tent and the little children would come out of the bush, they came to recognize that those kids were only eating once a week. And when he'd take his bowl of rice, that's all he knew how to cook. And they'd hold out their little hands. He said, Dad, I'd look at him on Skype, I'd say, Matt, you look skinny. He said, it's hard to eat when you see these kids starving. There are no excuses, nothing in what we face in America, not to serve Christ with a whole heart. Third and last, there's an opportunity. He said, follow me, and I will tell you that there is a life to be lived in Jesus Christ that supersedes any emotional feeling you've ever had by anything this world happens. If you'll just put a, a sack of feet up over your shoulder and walk down a path in Sudan, to a little tukul where there's a lady with five children and her husband has died of AIDS. And it says stay on the path because there are landmines. You'll never feel more purposeful. I'll submit to you this morning that you'll never feel more purposeful till you stop over on market. And you just don't hand them the tube, but you take the cap off of it and say, can I rub these on your wounds? And you look deeply in their eyes and you say, God loves you. But we are so busy and inconvenienced and we are so overwhelmed by the need we do not know where to begin. One shoebox. Operation Christmas Child. We were distributing boxes this past year in a remote place in the world and our team got there and a lady saw a little boy sitting in the corner and went over there and opened the box and wanted to give him the presents and he didn't want them. They brought a translator over and tried to understand what the boy was saying and he said, I don't want presents, I want parents. Our worker just started crying, wrote the name of the family down that had written the letter and their picture came back to the States and said, I want you to know where that box went. 
The man on the other end grew silent. He said, this is unbelievable. My wife and I have been praying about adopting a little boy. They went over and found him and adopted him and brought him home. And I will say to you this morning, it's not a story of adoption and parents. It's the story of a God that out of 8 million boxes would have put his finger on a family in Michigan, send that box to Minneapolis, put it in a container and send it to the furthest, most remote place in the world and push it into a room over to a little boy so that when that little boy opened it, it would be a reminder that God never forgets about one of us. There's a cost to following Christ. There's no excuses. There is an opportunity to make a difference in our world if we would just remember God hasn't forgotten about us. How do we forget about others? I want you to think about that and make the most of the opportunities both this afternoon and tonight and the days that are ahead. God has given our generation San Francisco to Cornerstone Church and we can make a difference, a little or big step at a time. In a moment, we're going to receive an offering, an act of worship, a gift. And it is not mandatory, but an opportunity for us to express to Christ what he means to us. And if you would, allow me to pray for you now as, as we come to this time. Father, thank you for allowing me to teach. I pray for this team. I pray for this church. I pray, Lord, that we would make the most of our lives, that we would uh, live lives live lives worth giving to someone, and it's always worth giving to others. People are what matter. Two things live forever, the Word of God and the souls of people. And so I just pray that our attention and our life might be dedicated to those two causes. And as we give now in this offering, let it be an expression really of a humble heart that we have been given so much, and to us much is required. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.